You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by our esteemed guest, Dr. Ursula Matalonis. So Dr. Matalonis is the chief of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she's the professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Regarded as a top giant in this space, uh, Dr. Matalonis is also our esteemed advisory board member. So we have a lot to chat with Dr. Matalonis today about recurrence in ovarian cancer and all the uh, latest and the greatest advances happening in this space. So grab your favorite coffee. I have mine, as I always say, and let's connect over coffee with Dr. There we go with Dr. Matalonis. <laughs> <And> awesome. <laughs> And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome back to you, Dr. Matalonis, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always an immense honor to have you with us. Hey, Runs, you're, you're so kind. It's always a pleasure to be here. And, and thank you for all you do and uh, and overcoming. And it's just, uh, it's a great, great overcome is such a great organization. So thank you so much. Thank you. I have like thousand questions for you. So right. I will start with the, the basics, you know, um, we are talking about ovarian cancer recurrence today. So can you tell us what percentage of ovarian cancers in general um, do recur? And is the recurrence rate different for different subtypes of ovarian cancers? What should our overcomers know about recurrence in ovarian cancer in general? Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question. Um, and you know, it's not a straightforward one either. I mean, I think it, it really depends upon, um, I think you alluded to the stage of the cancer. So that, that definitely is really important. Um, stage one, two cancers, you know, have a less chance of recurrence than, than more advanced uh, cancer and kind of bring together um, stage three and stage four, although there's some very subtle differences, certainly. Um, so I think, it's a complicated answer. I could spend like I spend an hour on this, um, but I won't. But I think, but it's really it's it's important. I think you know for and I and I'll bring this up um, during during our session today. It's really important for women to understand their stage. Um, if there's anything kind of unusual about the pathology um, you have questions about, or maybe even your physician is is questioning, it's always good to have a second opinion uh, from a pathologist who specializes in GYN oncology. So. Um, you know, if you're being operated on or treated at a maybe a smaller community hospital where the pathologist sees everything, um, and there's just a question, then definitely definitely have a second opinion. Um, but yes, so early stage cancers have less uh, chance of response, and and even some early stage cancers we we don't even after surgery do not get chemotherapy to. So there there's some you know sort of stage one A meeting one ovaries involved, low grade tumors, grade one, um, those, those individuals uh, maybe not, do not have to get chemotherapy. We usually don't give them chemotherapy. Um, but as, so, so that, you know, if, you're, if we're thinking about a high grade serous cancer, um, stage one uh, has about a, you know, 20 to 25% risk of recurrence. 
stage two, um, as long as that individual has been uh, staged by a gynecologic oncology surgeon and they've been sort of looked at uh, up and down throughout the abdomen and a CAT scan is done just to make sure there's nothing in the chest, um, that the stage two is or, you know, below 50%. Um, and then stage three, stage four really depends upon um, if the individual goes to surgery. So sometimes women just can't, they, they're, they're, they, their cancer is too extensive and the surgeon cannot go to surgery first because it's gonna put that individual behind. Like they won't get chemotherapy to sort of shrink things down. They go to surgery, but then the cancer continues to grow. So the surgeons are um, making that decision about neoadjuvant chemotherapy versus um, uh, upfront surgical uh, side reduction or upfront surgical removal of the tissue. And you know, even that is an important uh, distinction between um, recurrence and, and, you know, different levels of recurrence. So somebody who can go to surgery as assessed by a G1 oncology surgeon, um, their cancer can stay in remission longer and they may not ever come out of re remission. Um, but somebody who has extensive cancer, let's say stage four, maybe pleural effusions or, um, bulky disease, which the surgeon can't take, take, can take out initially, um, those, those cancers tend to have a, a little bit worse prognosis and, and could come back, uh, more often, but you know, you, you never can, these are all, these are all studies and putting women together. Sometimes there's smaller groups of women. Sometimes there's bigger groups of women. You know, I never, I never, uh, commit to how someone's going to do until we get going on treatment. And I see how somebody is, is doing. Um, if the cancer is going into remission, um, quickly cancer is really responding. Somebody stays in remission for a long period of time. Um, the BRCA mutation, uh, certainly plays a role. Um, an abnormal BRCA one or two mutation confers increased chemotherapy sensitivity. Uh, so increased sensitivity to platinum. Now we have PARP inhibitors that are used upfront. Um, you know, for two or three years, depending upon the drug used. Um, and at least in one of those trials called, called SOLO1, um, the impact of the PARP inhibitor on somebody who's been found to have a BRC mutation up front um, is pretty profound. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're learning things all the time. And, and um, so I, I never commit until we get going and see how somebody does. So it's a, it's a long-winded answer. And I think the other thing is you'd mentioned, Rosie, about... Um, histology. So um, there's obviously mucinous cancers, clear cell cancers, endometrioid, serous, high-grade, low-grade serous cancers. Um, and, and they all have their own unique um, properties um, and genetic components. And then, you know, when stage is superimposed on that, that, that can give us some sense about, you know, curability. But, um, you know, those are just, those are to be honest with you, sort of not guesses is so strong word, but sort of estimations based upon other women. But it doesn't mean that that's going to necessarily predict how somebody does. Yes, that makes sense. Thank you so much. So yeah. 
based on that, I was just, you know, curious that uh, we always say that when, uh, you know, when it comes to early detection, right, uh, when you detect cancers early, the uh, the chances of um, the curability, as you mentioned, is, is greater. So how does that translate into detecting early recurrences? Because mm. in, in situations where you can detect uh, the cancer coming back earlier, does that necessarily translate into, how does it translate into overall survival and treatment of the patient? And also, um, you know, to that point, how should our overcomers kind of stay vigilant of the physiological changes that may happen due to the cancer returning so that they can catch it earlier? So, yeah more about that yeah i think well i think it's a it's a complicated question and it's a really good one and 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 some of it we have information some of it we don't really have information um and i think you know getting back Lindsay, to one of the statements that you just made about if we detect something earlier then we're going to you know have an impact on how somebody does so the 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 only sort of caveat to that that i would mention is is the early detection screening test, the CA125. So there's a trial called the UKC TOX trial that was published a few years ago in, uh, in the Lancet, which is a big uh, journal, worldwide international journal. Um, and, it, and, it, and it basically reported on the overall survival results of using the CA125 as a, as a biomarker or as a um, early detection test. And, what that trial essentially found, just to, summar to summarize it really quite briefly, it's a pretty complicated trial, but basically by using the CA125 and an ultrasound and looking at the rate of change in the CA125, there was this, this entity called a downstaging. So basically, um, you know, more cancers were detected earlier. Mm. Um, and, you know, most of the cancers were high-grade serous cancers. Um, but there wasn't necessarily this improvement in how women did in terms of how long they lived. So it's, it's complicated. Um, so I, I think that the early detection is still, um, ha we haven't really gotten there yet uh, on early detection of ovarian cancer that we know will then lead to um, improved outcomes because we're detecting the cancers earlier. Um, a lot of work going on in that. Many, many groups are studying that around the U.S. plus worldwide. So hopefully something will, will, will come from that. Um, what's your question? Your question was? The question was that, you know, for the, the ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. already so, diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right, right. So for somebody who's already diagnosed, you know, what, what we have are, we've got the CA125. So when somebody finishes up chemotherapy with carboplatin paclitaxel, Either they're going to stay on carbotaxel by itself, or there's going to be some kind of a maintenance treatment added after chemotherapy is done. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be in the form of a PARP inhibitor. That can be in the form of uh, bevacizumab or Avastin. Mm -hmm. That can be in the form of both of those together. Or fourthly, it can be actually in the form of a, an aromatase inhibitor, an AI, aromatase inhibitor. Um, AI does not stand for artificial intelligence. It stands for aromatase inhibitor. Um, and it's a drug that basically kind of blocks the estrogen um, in the body from formation. And it's very important for low-grade serous cancer. So that's why it's important to understand stage, histology, um, 
whether or not the BRCA mutation is present. And all that information we, we gather when someone's on initial, initial chemotherapy, the HRD test, et cetera. Um, so once somebody's on maintenance or not, and really it's really regardless of the maintenance, um, you know, the standard of care is roughly every three months, somebody should be followed for a CA-125 um, and, you know, assessment of how they're doing. You know, do they have any new symptoms, anything going on? Um, and the, you know, there has not been to date any, any, any proof that picking something up early translates into somebody doing better. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, and there was a trial that was now a number of years old, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine from a group in, in the UK, the United Kingdom, that did exactly this. Basically, if someone finished up chemotherapy, there was no maintenance at that point. So that's kind of like the old, old ages of uh, treatment. But basically, women were followed with a CA-125, and either they knew the number and reacted to it, or they didn't know the number and um, were just waited until the recurrence happened. So uh, amazingly, those two groups, uh, women really had no, no changes. However, I would say that I think that the reason that there's been such an improvement in how long women live with ovarian cancer for um, is, you know, obviously the, the improvement in, in upfront surgery and making sure that folks are not going to surgery inappropriately, that they're going to get new adjuvant chemotherapy. If the surgeon says they can't go to do surgery, the addition of maintenance treatment, but also um, if the cancer recurs, how we treat that. And, you know, if, if somebody waits until they're symptomatic to get a recurrence, um, especially in the platinum resistance setting, and I know we'll talk about that, meaning that the cancer has received platinum and has grown through it within six months. Um, you know, our, our, our therapies are not as robust as using platinum. Um, so if you've got somebody with a symptomatic recurrence, let's say she's got a bowel obstruction, she's got ascites, um, and she has pain potentially, or some kind of uh, gastrointestinal problems because of the, uh, the tumor in the belly. Um, sometimes it's, it's hard for a single agent non-platinum drug in the platinum resistance setting to kind of take that, take that symptomatic person and make her asymptomatic. So it's better to start with lower levels of, of cancer that are not symptomatic because they're there, but we see them on scan, but they're not causing any problems. So I don't ignore those at all. Um, I treat them because I know that keeping them in check longer, um, I think should help that individual. I mean, again, it's, it's always a discussion about risks and benefits and side effects. And um, so none of these decisions are black and white. I mean, they really should be thought about uh, very individually uh, with the patient and her, um, and her treating oncologist. So um, I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. And it also okay. brings forth the point how critical it is for our overcomers to keep their appointments, you know, the three-month checkups and um, just stay on top of their disease so that any the earliest that we can pick up um, anything about the recurrence, it's, it's easier, it's relatively easier to treat. Absolutely. And there are situations um, where somebody's CA-125 goes up, but you know, CAT scans or PET scans just doesn't pick anything up. 
Um, so in those cases, you know, I, I, I don't treat because you're giving somebody who doesn't have, who may be feeling fine, doesn't have anything on CT scan, probably has cancer. Um, but, you know, why would we want to give somebody treatment just to lower a CA125 if there's nothing evident or seeable on a CT or a PET scan? Yeah, that makes sense. So um, in terms of, you know, remission, uh, because we all want to prolong that period of remission yeah. after cancer, uh, you're diagnosed. So sometimes, but we know that sometimes the cancer returns in three months, sometimes in three years, some 10 years, sometimes it never comes mm -hmm. back, you know, just yep. depending on the patient, as you, as you uh, mentioned. So can you, can you tell us why that happens? You know, what, what is the difference and have the patient's who have had a long remission, right? They have been studied. Have they been studied closely to understand what mm -hmm. differences they bring to the table versus the mm -hmm. others that recur earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a good question. I think you know, women who stay in remission longer um, following platinum, um, their cancer typically has this entity called HRD or underlying homologous recombination deficiency. And it's a property of the cancer cells that makes the cancer cells more amenable, more treatable with, with, with chemotherapy, specifically platinum. But that can also extend to non-platinum um, agents as well. So, um, you know, as cancer becomes more resistant to platinum, um, the response rates lower down sometimes, unfortunately, into the single digits. And then if somebody does have you know, either stability or some kind of a partial response to treatment, um, that, that unfortunately can be very short-lived. I mean, you know, there are exceptions to the rule. Nothing is, nothing is absolute, but, but I think it all has to do with the underlying cancer cells ability to be killed um, and then thus get into remission because of underlying DNA repair problems. And that again leads to this entity called homologous recombination deficiency. So carboplatinum works better, ARP inhibitors work better, other drugs like liposomal doxorubicin or doxyl work better, taxyl, I mean, so all, everything works better because the cancer cell is more susceptible um, to the effects of chemotherapy. Uh, but when that cancer cell, as I mentioned, becomes more resistant to platinum, resistant to treatment, um, it's harder to, to treat, at least with chemotherapy. Now, there can be um, other ways that, you know, again, this is where um, additional testing can come into play. So, for example, um, low-grade serous cancers are very exquisitely sensitive to hormonal therapy, aromatase inhibitors. Um, some non-high-grade serous cancers like mucinous tumors, sometimes clear cell cancers, sometimes low-grade endometrioid tumors have, can, can have underlying microsatellite instability, so very high levels of tumor mutational burden, making them more susceptible to immunotherapy drugs like checkpoint inhibitors. Um, high-grade serous cancer is not that case. And we find other things by doing sequencing on tests, we'll find, you know, does the cancer have a RAS mutation? Does it have something called cyclin E um, amplification? Uh, so there are things that we'll, you know, we'll kind of look for um, that 
might help us think outside the box a little bit besides chemotherapy? So when you do these tests, uh, Dr. Matlonis, does it yeah. give you an indication of how many months or years these, this particular patient may remain in remission based on the test results? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are situations where if if the tumor if the tumor comes back HRP or homologous recombination proficient, um, maybe there's a, a sluggish response to chemotherapy. Maybe the CA125 is not dropping as briskly as one would like. Um, at the completion of six cycles, there may be, you know, like little bits of cancer that that are seen on a CAT scan or a PET scan. You know, I think that individual is certainly um, more likely to um, to to progress. Um, so, I, yeah, I think I think I, I get us I get I can get a sense of things, but I, again, I, I don't think anything is one hundred percent absolute. Of course, of course. And so, yeah. is this a is this a test then? In terms of your guidance to our overcomers, you know, and not every um, one of our overcomers are being treated at big centers like Dana Farm. Sure, sure, sure. Right. So if they're at a community hospital, um, do you think this is a question they should be asking their providers as to should I test for my HR, whether I'm HR proficient? Yeah. Is that a question? I mean, you know, for, for somebody who's got an advanced high-grade serous ovarian cancer, I mean, it is it is standard of care. I would say it's standard of care to get germline genetic testing. Um, and, and then I follow after that based upon next generation sequencing. So sequence and tumor looking specifically for BRCA mutations if the germline testing is negative. When somebody, as soon as somebody walks through the door, and they've got a diagnosis that maybe might be made on a, through surgery or through a, a core biopsy through interventional radiology. As long as that says high-grade serous cancer, I then go ahead and start ordering germline testing, just so that the family, you know, the family, her family will know is there a BRCA gene or not, yes. or, a, or another high-risk gene present. Um, if it's negative, then I'll proceed with. Um, uh, sequencing, so next generation sequencing or NGS. And why am I doing that? Well, I'm looking for a BRCA mutation only in the tumor, not something that is inherited, because if I find a BRCA mutation in the cancer only, um, that can be just as uh, sensitive to a drug like a PARP inhibitor than if, if there's an inherited BRC mutation. And then HRD is really important around, you know, somebody has advanced high-grade serous ovarian cancer, she goes into remission. And then the, the HRD testing is really important about trying to figure out, um, should she go on a PARP inhibitor, yes or no? Or can we can we guide that? If she's on Avastin, she started Avastin with chemotherapy, finishes up six cycles of chemotherapy, and the plan is for the Avastin to go on for another approximately year, but the cancer is HRP, not HRD, but homologous recombination proficient, meaning the cancer does not have underlying DNA repair problems. If you add a PARP inhibitor, it's actually, we can do some, we can do some damage. We, you know, the, the outcomes are worse than if we did not add a, a PARP inhibitor. So um, there, there's a lot to be learned from the, the, the genetics of the cancer. Thank you. So, um... As we talked about in certain pa patients, the uh, recurrence can happen multiple times, right? So not just once. So mm -hmm. can you help us understand the options then for our overcomers 
that they have at each time the cancer is returning and how do those options evolve with each number of recurrences and at what juncture are decisions made between continuing treatment and stepping back due to the uh, toxicity that you know that mm-hmm. in because of multiple treatment lines yeah sure i mean i think that i think as long as is somebody is wants to do treatment wants to continue treatment and i think that the treatment is not going to cause harm yeah. you know we and i would say i mean all the treatments can cause harm obviously side effects but i mean like precipitate someone not doing well like passing away, something like that, or they're just too too sick to get it, then I'll say no. But I mean, if somebody is well, they want to continue on treatment. um, And we we definitely have a lot of options. So those options, if somebody has a platinum sensitive recurrence, meaning that that the cancer grew at least six months after platinum, and that growth can be defined as either a change in CA-125 going up, CAT scans done show some small bits of cancer or something more significant, like, yeah, I've got pain now. And, you know, eight, nine months later, I've got abdominal discomfort. I may have some ascites. Um, so that's platinum sensitive. So, you know, the standard of care is, is reusing carboplatinum. Um, and that can be attached to multiple different medications, going back to paclitaxel using pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, using gemcitabine. Um, and then all of those three can be used with or without uh, Avastin or Bevacizumab. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these treatment decisions have to be made upfront. You know, is, is, that, is that patient appropriate to receive Avastin? You know, is her, she have well-controlled blood pressure? Her kidneys are okay. Um, the other thing I look for is actually cancer around the intestines. So if there's cancer, infiltrating into intestines, um, she may be at higher risk and is at higher risk of a bowel perforation with Avastin. So I might hold Avastin at that time point until we get better control uh, of the cancer. Um, The use of PARP inhibitors has greatly diminished in the recurrent setting um, through 2022, through a number of different, um, essentially uh, rescinding of FDA approval, starting with PARP inhibitors as treatment for recurrent BRC mutated ovarian cancer. And usually that would be defined as heavily pretreated ovarian cancer, meaning at least receipt of three or more lines of treatment. Um, and um, another topic for another day, but a couple of trials over 2022 showed that the women who, and these are randomized trials, either using chemotherapy versus a PARP inhibitor, um, that in somebody more heavily pretreated, uh, women receiving chemotherapy actually do better um, than receiving a PARP inhibitor. So that that took away all the three approvals, both for or, uh, all four: rucaparib, olaparib, and niraparib. Um, and then in the platinum-sensitive maintenance recurrent uh, setting, um, niraparib and rucaparib both uh, had their FDA approvals for non-BRCA mutated ovarian cancer. So if somebody has a, an underlying BRCA mutation, she has recurrent disease, her cancer is deemed platinum sensitive, she's receiving platinum, going into remission, and she's never received the PARP inhibitor before, all three drugs have indications. 
Um, if someone's received a PARP inhibitor front, um, I would be really careful. And I'm not using a PARP inhibitor in the recurrent setting just because there's a trial that has been reported showing that the cancer stays in remission longer, but we don't have information about survival. Mm. Um, the other important fact about PARP inhibitors in the recurrent setting, especially in the BRCA mutated, and especially in the germline BRCA mutated, so in other words, an inherited BRCA mutation, um, there's definitely an elevated risk of a secondary leukemia um, that I always uh, mention and somebody has to be, be aware of. So, but I think as we're using PARP inhibitors more upfront when somebody's newly diagnosed, um, they're, they're used for shorter periods of time and that risk of a secondary leukemia is, uh, is much less. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, when we're thinking about recurrence besides, you know, the, plat the platinum sensitive um, than platinum resistant, but get also back to platinum sensitive, there are a number of clinical trials around as well um, that are testing, you know, new drug strategies uh, as either part of carboplatinum-based treatment or used as maintenance or both. So there's always a lot of centers will have clinical trials open for somebody with the platinum sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. And most of the time it's, it's platinum uh, or it's high grade serous ovarian cancer. Now in the platinum resistance setting, um, you know, lots of clinical trials ongoing right now. Um, in the non-platinum setting, uh, single agent non-platinum drugs like liposomal doxorubicin, chimcitabine, topotecan, oral cytoxan um, are all possible treatments. Um, on November 14th in uh, 2022, Mervituximab was given an accelerated approval for women with platinum resistant ovarian cancer um, up to three prior lines of treatment. And they had to have a test on their cancer um, showing that the cancer was positive for folate receptor alpha, which is mervituximab attaches to. Mervituximab is an antibody drug conjugate. Um, antibody attacks the protein. The drug is then attached to a small drug. Um, in uh, the case of mervituximab, it's called DM4, which is an anti-microtubule agent like paclitaxel, um, showing very good response rates. Um, and so now, we have that as another drug available for our patients. The other <laughs> important um, message about mervituximab is that a paper just published a few days ago in gynecologic oncology tests the combination of mervituximab with Avastin mm. and showing in that trial that there are very good response rates even at lower levels of folate receptor alpha. So you don't have to be that 75% or higher of cancer cells staying positive for folate receptor. It can be 25% or higher. So <laughs> both of those have gone on to the NCCN guidelines and those are guidelines that you know physicians use to help plan treatments, um, but also importantly, insurance companies use to help decide whether or not they're gonna pay for something. So uh, mervituximab by itself um, received a 2A designation, meaning, you know, general agreement from everybody on the committee that that was a good drug to use 
been cases of platinum-resistant ovarian cancer where the folate receptor expression was quite high. Um, and then uh, mirbatuximab plus avastin was given a 2B designation, meaning you know it's a possibility. Not everybody in the committee was in an agreement, but it's there. Um, and that can be used for lower levels of expression of folate receptor alpha. Um, and I'm often asked, well, how do, you, how do you position these different drugs? How do you make clinical decisions? And, you know, it's a, it's a discussion with somebody. I mean, I think, you know, we, we have drugs like topotecan, gemcitabine. Each of these have response rates that are, you know, quite low. Um, and then mirbatuximab with a response rate of about 32.4%. So, um, you know, I, I, but not everyone's cancer is folate receptor alpha. Not everybody can get combined mirbatuximab of Astin, even if their folate receptor alpha test is lower. Um, so it's a discussion with the, um, with the patient and kind of going over risks and benefits, what side effects she wants to avoid, what side effects are acceptable uh, to her. Um, and then, you know, as I said, many clinical trials around now looking at different treatment strategies, either for something that you pick up on sequencing or through testing of the cancer, basically looking at external proteins on the cancer cell. So folate receptor alpha is one of those, um, but others are HER2, HER2. Um, there's another one called NAPI2B. Um, and there are different antibody drug conjugates that can recognize those proteins on the external part of the cancer cell. So it's just a protein that kind of hangs on the outside of the cell membrane, as opposed to a mutation um, or amplification of a gene, which is, you know, again, more located within the DNA of the cell. So there are lots of treatments available. It's a very exciting time. It is. And um, Dr. Matlonis, I'll take you back a little bit on the antibody drug con conjugates, right? You're talking about that and the uh, folate receptor alphas. So for, for me and our overcomers that are listening, can you um, break it down a little simply? What is uh, NADC? And, you know, um, again, uh, you talked about the folate receptor alpha. So, for our overcomers that are platinum resistant, um, mm -hmm. should they all be testing for this? Uh, what is your guidance? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know it's it. So the the way that the the way that so the trial that led to the accelerated approval uh, of mirbatuximab in November of 2022 was a trial called Soraya S O R A Y A, and it involved about 106. Women. This is an international trial all over the all over the globe um, for platinum resistant, high grade serous ovarian cancer, and those patients had received up to three prior lines of treatment. So carboplatin taxol plus two others, and the test their their test their folate receptor alpha test had to be positive. So an antibody drug conjugate. It's just as it says, an antibody. So an antibody is like a big Y, like the letter Y. The open part of the Y attaches to an entity, a protein, moiety on the external surface of the cancer cell. 
So it's like a docking site. So if the antibody is able to recognize that, it attaches to the cancer cell. And then the drug, which is conjugated or attached or linked to the antibody, gets into the cancer cell. Okay. And some of those drugs stay in the cancer cell and have little bystander effect, meaning it just sort of kills the cancer cell. But sometimes you want a bystander effect because it may be maybe some cells in the mix don't have as much expression of that protein. Expression means that how much protein's on the membrane of the cell. So if it's less, maybe that drug is not going to get in. So the bystander effect can, um, you know, can work both ways. One is that it can get into, the drug can get into cells that don't have that protein, but on the other hand, it can sometimes cause more side effects. So that's what an antibody drug conjugate does. And there are very popular drugs right now in oncology. So there are drugs that are test, that are targeting folate receptor alpha, mirbituximab being the first that's been given an accelerated approval for ovarian cancer. But then there are others. There's a drug called NHER2 or DS8201A or trastuzumab deruxacan. Those are all the same names for the same drug. And it's an antibody drug conjugate that attaches to HER2, H-E-R2. And HER2 is important for some GYN cancer. So in ovarian cancer, it tends to be present on very low levels um, on the cell membrane of the cancer cell. Uh, but sometimes, even if there's a little bit, that drug can actually work um, on ovarian cancer. So there are a number of different trials testing um, both the drug I just mentioned, plus other antibody drug conjugates against HER2 in ovarian cancer. So if somebody comes to me and, you know, the single agent chemotherapy is not doing as good a job as we want to, yeah, I, I said, let's, let's do folate receptor alpha testing. Let's do HER2 testing because the HER2 targeted antibody drug conjugates are on clinical trials right now. Um, I would see a world where, you know, all of these proteins are tested up front when somebody's newly diagnosed because that level of expression or that level of presence of the protein doesn't really change much it, from the initial diagnosis and if somebody um, has a recurrence. So instead of having to biopsy somebody, uh, you know, with a little small tissue, you know, removal of tissue, we can use archival tissue, meaning tissue that's sitting in a lab, in the pathology lab, and that somebody just needs to find, um, take a few slices and then, and then stain, uh, stain, the st st stain the slides for that particular uh, protein that you want to stain for. But if you did it all front, then you'd have that information and wouldn't have to be scrambling uh, like we're doing now to try to find the pathology slides. You know, the labs initially uh, doing this test for folate receptor alpha I think we're very overwhelmed because of the, the number of women needing this drug. Uh, so there was a little bit of a lull in the um, efficiency of getting things done, but now all the labs are back up um, and uh, you know, oncologists should be able to um, access that test pretty straightforwardly. It doesn't come back overnight, but you know, because the pathologists have to find the slides, they have to find the tissue, slice it, send it, to the lab, central lab, once the lab gets it, eh, it's about a five-day turnaround time. So it can, it, it definitely happens, but you have to sort of think ahead and plan ahead. 
Um, and if there's somebody who may be, you know, on a drug for platinum resistant ovarian cancer recurrence, um, she may be doing well, but why not get that test now and have that information in hand as opposed to scrambling uh, when somebody is, uh, has got recurrence? So for the platinum resistant patients, uh, what percentage of these patients are folate receptor alpha positive? So pretty high numbers, 90% um, or higher, but high levels of expression are about 36%. Okay. So um, that's why the, the trial with Avastin is so important because you, you can add Avastin to, to Mervatuximab even at low levels of expression. But if you're gonna use Mervatuximab by itself, um, and you don't want to add in the side effects of Avastin, um, that level of expression or presence of folate receptor alpha has to be high. And that high is a very straightforward number to be 75% of cancer cells staining two to three plus positive, meaning heavy staining can't be like light, can be heavy two plus. So those stains are zero, one, two, or three plus. Zero means like you don't see anything, no staining of the cell. One plus is faint two and three plus are more staining. So it has to be 75% of cancer cells stain two to three plus positivity. And that's about 36% of all women with high grade serous ovarian cancer will have that. That's not insignificant, even 36. No, it's not. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. That's, that's amazing. So um, you talked about the... Um, the MARV being on the um, accelerated FDA approval, right? So what would it take? Just a brief um, answer on your end would be great. So we understand the difference between the accelerated versus the full approval, right? Mm -hmm. what, what is the timeline for that? And what should our overcomers ask about the full sure. approval? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So the accelerated approval, you can get, gain access to the drug now. So I'm, I've am i been writing for Mervatexmab in the appropriate situation. So the accelerated approval means that um, patients and physicians can gain access to the drug um, and that the FDA wants to see a, a, is like a, fa a phase three study. I mentioned that Soraya study was single agent, 106 patients on trial worldwide. The Mirasol trial, uh, M-I-R-A-S-O-L study, was a randomized trial of either chemotherapy versus Mervatuximab in women with platinum resistant high grade serous ovarian cancer who have high levels of expression of folate receptor alpha. And that study has completed accrual. Um, if you look at the, the fine print in the press release uh, when Mervatuximab was initially granted accelerated approval in November, there's print in that uh, press release saying the FDA has looked at some of the data at Mirasol. None of it's been presented. And they basically want to make sure that before they grant an accelerated approval, that the that there's a good chance that the phase three, we call it a confirmatory trial, is going to be positive in favor of, in this case, Mervatuximab. So they've already looked at some of the data. Um, none of it's been publicly disclosed. We don't know about it. The company doesn't know about it. Um, they had a third party give the FDA the data. So the FDA is being particularly uh, scrutinizing at the moment, which is certainly, um, I think, very appropriate. Okay. 
Thank you. And my next question was about the Mirasol trial, but you already answered that. So thank you. Um, so in terms of you mentioned there's lots of clinical trials happening, both in the resistant as well as the uh, uh, sensitive space. So if you had to just give us a brief snapshot of what 2023 is going to look like for our overcomers, what, how would you how would you guide us through yeah. that? I mean, I think I'm 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 hoping that a number of trials will report out, um, either 2023 or certainly 2024, um, and that's around the use of PARP inhibitors up front in women whose cancers are homologous recombination proficient, so HRP, like keto, the keeping the cancer in remission for a few months. That's what PARP inhibitors can do, but. Is there any negative effect? Does that really improve survival? Um, you know, none of these trials were sort of powered for survival. They're looking at progression-free survival, but I think it's important to help us make decisions with um, patients to see that kind of data. Then there are other data, more data looking at the combinations of PARP inhibitors with immunotherapy. Um, there are at least four trials that have not reported out yet. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, nobody should be using upfront immunotherapy um, in the upfront setting because there's just no data to support that. And these drugs can really have significant side effects. So you only want to use something um, if it really show, has shown to be, to be a good thing to do. Um, so I think those are important, uh, important trials that we're looking forward to. Um, and then, you know, different, different agents being tested um, in different subtypes of ovarian cancer. So, you know, there are different strategies that are, that are being uh, looked at for low-grade serous ovarian cancers beyond um, an aromatase inhibitor uh, in the recurrent setting. I should also add that in the upfront setting, there's a trial ongoing. It's not going to be reported in 2023, um, but that's basically testing upfront use of an aromatase inhibitor, specifically a drug called letrozole, versus chemotherapy. So not even using chemotherapy in somebody with who's diagnosed with a low-grade serous cancer. So that's an interesting trial and could potentially change the standard of care of how we treat low-grade serous cancers who are newly diagnosed. Um, but there are a number of different uh, agents, combinations of agents based upon the, um, you know, the sequencing of the cancer. And so lots of lots going on there. Clear cell cancer, um, does immunotherapy work better here or not? Yeah, I think the answer is we don't know. One of my colleagues has a combination of uh, pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib. Lenvatinib is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, drug. That combination has been given full FDA approval for recurrent uterine cancer. So we're testing it in clear cell ovarian cancer. Um, Mucinous cancers, again, you know, they're not necessarily trials that are specific for mucinous cancers, but they're trials that are specific based upon the, his, uh, the sequencing and what genetic abnormalities uh, we unearth. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot going on around novel immunotherapy concepts for recurrent, mostly high-grade serous ovarian cancer. So these things called bispecific antibodies. So this is a is another antibody, but instead of the antibody recognizing just one entity, the bispecific recognizes two things. So it recognizes one protein and a second protein, and it brings these cells together. And 
you know, I think it, it, it's, it, they're interesting. They're, you, can, you can think about different combinations of which, which two entities are being targeted and then combining it with other drugs. Um, but, you know, these, these drugs have side effects for sure. Um, and they go beyond um, the usual checkpoint inhibitor uh, uh, side effects like, you know, liver, liver damage. Again, these are all pretty rare, but, 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 but someone, when, when signing on to a trial like this, you've got to write, read the uh, consent form very carefully. Um, CAR-Ts, natural killer cell products, macrophages. So really looking at the different components of the immune system and trying to target different components. So there's a lot going on. I think progress is definitely, you know, it doesn't happen overnight because these trials are complicated. Uh, they take a lot of regulatory oversight to run them. There's manufacturing issues with the products. Um, so, but I think, but I think there's a lot, the bottom line is there's a lot going on, which is uh, very exciting. I mean, there are ways of targeting things like cyclin E amplification through CDK2 inhibitors. So there's a lot going on. I think we just have to think about everyone's cancers in a very unique way and get as much genetic information as we can, as much information about what, what molecules are on the cell surface uh, to try to plan um, beyond you know, what we have already in terms of chemotherapy, uh, you know, Mervituximab, drugs like PARP inhibitors, and drugs like Bevacizumab. And this is where I feel the role of AI, as you said, artificial intelligence in this case, uh, will probably shape the management of, you know, not just the early detection, but also the recurrence of ovarian cancer. I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think artificial intelligence is, you know, there's been, been, been a big push using AI and not, this is not a romantic inhibitor, this is a artificial intelligence, um, looking at biomarkers for early detection. So there's a lot looking at that. Uh, again, none of it quite mainstream yet, but you know, we're already, we have a trial ongoing here at Dana Farber. Um, I just got some, like a message the other day where a patient of mine's scan had changed and basically the artificial intelligence sent me an email saying, you know, we think that this patient could have progression over cancer. Well, I knew that already. Um, but but it's uh, but but those sort of machine learning techniques are already being implemented into uh, into care, but not you know not in a not in a oh my gosh the machine is telling me what to do, but you know maybe in in, in different ways uh, we're, we're far from AI telling us what to do. Yeah, and and absolutely, but I just think that as an aid to the doctors, yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. It can certainly help uh, in its own ways to absolutely medicine as we go along. So I agree, and I think also in terms of you know diagnostic. So from from the pathology standpoint, um, you know, taking sequencing information, looking at images, uh, you know, because there's some there's some histologies of ovarian cancers that are not always correctly called, like mucinous tumors. Uh, clear cell cancer. So, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think in, in those situations, AI might prove very helpful. Yeah. yeah. And so um, just, you know, reversing roles a little bit. So if you were an overcover for a day, um, what 
tell us what questions you would ask of your healthcare team if your cancer recurred and knowing what you know, how would you best prepare for a possible recurrence? Yeah, no, I think I would, I would do exactly what I mentioned before and that's gaining as much information about the cancer as possible. And that is through, you know, understanding the histology of it, um, certain markers, uh, HER2, folate receptor alpha, um, the estrogen receptor positivity or, or lack of that. Um, anything that we can use to target different medications to it. And then importantly, doing sequencing. And that's just simple next generation sequencing. It's, uh, it's looking at a large panel of genes and then not only looking at genetic mutations, but looking at something called tumor mutational burden to determine whether or not that individual could potentially receive immunotherapy or she might be at higher chance of responding to an immunotherapy. And then thirdly, um, copy number variations or CNV, copy number variations. So basically looking at how many genes are present that are abnormal. There may not be mutated, but there are just a lot of copies of it. So that would fall into um, cyclin E amplification. Uh, you know, if there's six copies or more, that usually means that's amplified. And that really opens up a number of different potential clinical trials for somebody. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Matlunis. So, so I have asked you a lot of questions, uh, about 5,000 by now, but in general, what, oh what do you think I have missed that you may want to share um, with our overcomers? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, Rinsa, you did a fantastic job um, covering everything that's really important in the field right now. Um, and I would just, you know, continue to advocate for, um, you know, scientific research, cl novel clinical trials, um, you know, companies looking into novel ways of treating ovarian cancer, labs, scientific labs focusing on ovarian cancer. So really um, making sure that funding is going to um, ovarian cancer, because that's how we're going to make, we're going to make that next breakthrough is through basic science research understanding something better, and then translating that into rational clinical trials um, that hopefully are going to benefit, benefit our, our, our patients. Wonderful. And in closing, Dr. Matlonis, what message of hope and overcoming would you like to share with our overcomers that are listening? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I think I've shared a number of different messages of hope um, already around, you know, the, the improvement of, of how long women live for with this cancer, um, the improved genetic <clears throat> understandings of ovarian cancer, um, really a breakthrough with Mervituximab being uh, accelerated approval in November of 2022, the first, the first antibody drug conjugate approved, but also the first new drug approved since 2014. So that to me, um, I think is a very important next step um, and then, you know, just doing, doing the legwork, um, you know, hit, hitting your, your oncologist with questions and making sure that you write things down before seeing him or her and, uh, understanding your cancer as best as you possibly can. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Matlonis. As always, you bring a wealth of information for us and our overcomers. We appreciate you and your knowledge and your guidance very, very much. So thank you for your time today. And overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know that I say this every time I talk to Dr. Matlonis, that we always come out learning so much from our sessions with her. And we'll invite her back once again very soon because we have a lot to learn. We continue to learn from Dr. Matlonis. So um, stay tuned for our next episode of Connect Over Coffee. And we will be back with more on um, ovarian cancer recurrence. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.